The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, as always, you're in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews, market analysis, and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. Today on the show, coming off a record-breaking year for ETF flows, we're kicking off 2022 with a deep dive into the most salient themes to watch for in the weeks and the months ahead. Everything from COVID concerns, rising interest rates, rich-looking tech valuations, crypto, ESG, the whole schmageggy. <laughs> a brand new ETF also that aims to help investors not only protect against, but also profit from rising inflation. All that ahead, here's my conversation with Tom Lydon, CEO of ETF Trends, along with John Davi, CEO and CIO of Astoria Portfolio Advisor. Tom, let me start with you. Uh, the big themes of 2021, we talked about it all last year. ESG, number one, number two, thematic tech, and finally, the lack of a Bitcoin ETF. But you say these may give way to a different narrative in 2022 based on inflation protection. Now, why are you saying that and what are you recommending? Well, Bob, we've seen uh, concerns among the advisor community for the past year, and there have been areas like gold, which hasn't done as well, but energy, agriculture, base metals, a lot of those inflation areas that hedge um, during these times have done quite well. Two of the biggest uh, by Invesco were up over 40% so far this year, and that's without gold participating. Gold tends to be a second half player. So if we do see continued inflation and rising rates in 22, I think we're going to start to see gold kick in as well. You know, John, talking to you, I noticed you have a, a, a similar call speaking to you in the last week. You say inflation themes will dominate, will be less focused on crypto and less focus on disruptive growth. Uh, explain that for us. Yeah, I just think, Bob, last year was a perfect storm. You had, like, you know, COVID lockdowns. You had supply chain bottlenecks. So it was a perfect year for inflation to rise. And, you know, I just think that, you know, there aren't enough tools out there that can provide, you know, a one-ticker solution for investors to kind of not only just protect. See, you said an interesting word. You said protect against inflation. You know, we at Story Advisors think you should, you know, look to embrace it and, and not only embrace it, but look to benefit and that speaks to Tom's point, which is that things like cyclical stocks and pro-cyclical commodities like energy based metals actually do well when inflation rises. So let's move, let's change the narrative away from protecting, but to benefit from inflation. Because when I turn on CNBC every day, you know, all I hear is guests on your show talking about how inflation is structural and it's here to stay. So I think we have to discuss a different narrative for inflation. I want to... Uh Go back to the stock selection point, because this is the question I get the most from investors here. Uh, the mean reversion question, I call it. Uh, growth, mostly technology, has outperformed everything since 2009, since the Fed got very aggressive uh, with, with, with monetary policy. Uh, and particularly in the last five years, uh, growth and uh, tech primarily has outperformed. So the question now is, is it time for value stocks, the pharmaceuticals, the banks, the energy stocks, uh, to shine. Tom, your thoughts on tech in 2022? Well, they've, they've already started, Bob. Um, you know, v VLUE uh, was up almost as much as the S&P 500 in 21. 
And obviously, from a valuation standpoint, those stocks are on sale compared to the stocks in, in the S&P 500. Uh, and as we talked about earlier, the equal weight strategy in the S&P 500 did just as well as the cap-weighted strategy. So the good thing is we're already starting to see more participation across all stocks. And then again, as you, as you talk about the big swing that we saw in growth versus value uh, in the last 10 years, the divergence that we've never really seen before, things do eventually get back to the mean. And if you do have a diversified portfolio with both growth and value, you should do well over time. I think some of the areas that uh, we continue to be concerned about is small cap participation hasn't been as great. Um, developed markets and emerging markets, again, not as great. But from a valuation standpoint, they look really on sale compared to the S&P 500. John, your, your thoughts on growth versus value? I mean, I know energy had a good year, but energy is 3%. Uh, what about growth versus value? And what about international stocks? They've also underperformed the United States over the last decade. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, we talked about value when I was on the show back in June 2020. Um, actually, sorry, June 2021. And, you know, it's, as you said on that show at the time, it's like an old school ideology. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, what works is that after a recession, like what we had in 2020, what typically works is, value, uh, inflation-linked strategies, cyclicals, and that, you know, we expect it to continue. I mean, the last 10 years, you've had this proliferation of tech and growth because interest rates have been a secular decline, and, you know, tech companies, you know, their value increases when you discount future cash flows, but as interest rates go up, I think tech stocks are going to be challenged. You know, I started my career, Bob, energy stocks are 25% of the S&P, now they're 3%. You mentioned cryptocurrencies. Yeah. You know, energy stocks, the XLE, basically performed the same as Bitcoin last year. But Bitcoin has these massive, you know, fluctuations and massive volatility. So what's interesting is that, you know, energy stocks actually outperform crypto on a, on a risk-adjusted basis. And I think that's going to, you know, continue for the next year or two. I think you're going to see a lot more rotation into the value inflation cyclical trade. Yeah, I, I would hope so. Uh, you know, I'm an old school guy. Uh, I'm a, you know, Jack Bogle disciple myself, founder of Vanguard, have been uh, a disciple for many years. And, and we both know, we all know, all three of us, that over long periods of time, historically, value has outperformed growth and small cap has outperformed big cap. But it's been a long wait. The, those guys who are into that philosophy have had a tough uh, 10 years, and particularly a tough five years. Uh, so there's a lot of people saying, okay, Bob, when? And it's a tough call to make. I certainly believe in mean reversion, as you guys probably do. I certainly believe it's time for them to outperform. And the fact that the S&P energy is 3% of the S&P, as John says, is astonishing to me, given that Exxon was the biggest company in the United States 20 years ago, uh, uh, Exxon and General, and General Electric. So uh, I keep waiting for that to happen, uh, but uh, I have to say, um, other than the interest rate rise, uh, there are compelling arguments for keeping in growth, other than the interest rate problem that's happened many times. Uh, I want to move on and talk a little bit about inflows. Uh, it was amazing to me that in a year dominated by ESG and tech, thematic tech investing, most of the inflows we're into plain vanilla ETFs. We, we had $900 billion in inflows. Tom, you and I talked about this. And most of it, I, I'm looking at the top six list here. It was all 
Uh, S&P 500 ETFs that dominate the market, or the triple Qs I see here, uh, that's the NASDAQ 100. Uh, but those that's pretty amazing. Just on an inflow basis, with all this talk about crypto, all this talk about you know small thematic tech investing, most of the money went into... Again, the, the index guys, you know, won out. And Tom, w yeah. will that continue into 2022? What would reverse that? Well, not a lot, Bob. I mean, it's it's just another uh, great reason what ETFs are all about. It, it's diversification. It's low cost. It's tax efficiency. Uh, the first S&P 500 ETF that was put on the map back in 1983, it continues to be for all the right reasons. As more and more investors have shifted away and almost lost confidence in active management. They understand that core investing and core diversification is key and critical. More and more advisors have models that are wrapped around these core indexes. And we're going to continue to see flows as we've seen money come out of active mutual funds at the rate that we've seen money going into ETFs. So it, it's all for the right reasons. It's really fun to talk about thematic strategies crypto, um, uh, gold, things like that. But when you look at where all the money's flowing, it's in those basic indexes and the ETFs around them. Yeah, John, you've had a very simple uh, approach to this for a number of years now. You've advised in investors to keep 70, 80% uh, of their portfolios in low-cost index funds and then take the rest and uh, try to add alpha. You advise still using thematic tech. Are you? Are, is that balance still right? Take 70, 80%, put them in low-cost index funds, and take the rest and try to get some alpha? And where do you get alpha this year? Well, I think that, you know, that should still be the message. At the end of the day, you know, actively managed mutual funds last year had $400 billion of outflows. So that big number you just mentioned, I look at that as being reduced because a lot of it is just people continually shifting out of active management into passive. And I think it's because active managers just don't take enough risk. They charge too much. But yeah, probably, you know, 70, 80% of your ETFs and tickers like, you know, VTI, IEMG, IEFA, you know, and then use like a sleeve of, of 15, 20% in things that you believe in. So we had to start advisors believing in inflation. So we've got, you know, strategies, you know, to kind of benefit from higher inflation. Um, you know, so I think your core should be cheap. It should, you should hold it forever. And then on the margin, you, you, you change your sleeve periodically depending on, you know, what are the latest trends in the marketplace. I want to move on and talk about bond funds because it was quite amazing to me. Bond funds also had, for the most part, modest inflows, uh, but they were all down for the year. Most of them were down about 1%. I mean, not a lot, but, uh, you know... It, is there anything in the bond ETF universe, uh, Tom, uh, that you're looking at? John, you could take a crack at, crack at this, too. But is there any reason for us to look at it? What about high yield? I, I eternally get questions about high yield. People are throwing money still at high yield at 35 to 4%. Is that too risky now? Well, I think this is going to be a big story in 22, Bob. Um, most don't remember what it's like to invest in fixed income during rising interest rates. It's just not good for a fixed income portfolio. We're say, surveying advisors all the time that are moving their 60-40 strategies to 70-30s or even 80-20. So what's happening is money is leaving the Barclays-Zag core strategy and either doing one of two things going over to the equity side and looking for dividend strategies or 
they're going to real short duration active ETF strategies or in fact cash. We've got a record $7 trillion in money market funds, $15 trillion sitting in passbook accounts at banks. It's scary because people are concerned about ri what rising rates do. One final thing, uh, yeah. on the other side of the barbell, they're looking at options overlay strategies. We've talked about strategies like Nationwide uh, Newsy or JEPI out by JEPI out by JP Morgan. It's a great way to get added income, in some cases, 7 or 8%, uh, while you also have some exposure to equities. And I think we're going to see more of those types of strategies come to the surface. Yeah, you know, uh, John, uh, apropos of what Tom was saying, uh, Vanguard's short-term bond fund was one of the had some of the biggest inflows uh, this year. It's kind of strange to see a short-term bond fund with enormous inflows, but that goes exactly to what Tom was telling us about. Now, uh, John, last week uh, you launched a new ETF to address these inflation issues we keep talking about. Uh, this is the uh, Access uh, ETF that you, you launched last week. Tell us a little bit about that, the Access Story Inflation Sensitive ETF. Sure. Um, so there's PPI. It's kind of a play on the producer price index, which is, you know, one of the biggest inflation groups. Look, Bob, at the end of the day, you know, going back a year, year and a half ago, I was on CNBC and I said, look, I think rates are rising, inflation's rising. And what we were doing in our portfolios is that we were buying things like banks, industrials, energy, commodities, um, you know, some of the agricultural plays. And our core portfolio combined with our sleeve became a little bit, you know, overwhelming. So we just thought, okay, if we're struggling with this, if we've got seven ETFs that we're trying to use to cobble together an inflation theme, you know, let's look at a potential ETF that provides, you know, a one ticker solution that gives you broad uh, market exposure to not only cyclical stocks, which benefit from rising inflation, but also physical commodities, commodity equities, and then tips. So that's what PPI does. It has those four segments, you know, cyclicals, um, commodity equities, commodities, and tips. And I think, you know, again, the narrative is, let, let's, you said earlier on the show, protect, but we think you should embrace it and then look for strategies that benefit. So the ETF has, the four sectors are industrials, energy, materials, and banks. Those sectors historically have had you know, the most sensitivity to, to rising inflation, and then along with those commodities and tips that I mentioned. Uh, you know, so we're excited for yeah. it. You know, I think next year will be the, the theme of uh, inflation ETFs out there. Yeah, and, and Tom, what do you think of this here? So what John's got here, 70 80% in cyclical stocks, 10 to 15% commodities, 5 to 10% in tips. I get a lot of questions about tips these days, but I, I just don't quite get it. I understand it's inflation-protected, but it's not going to it doesn't seem like tips is going to provide you much inflation protection if you really want to try to do a little bit better. I don't I don't know how or what you're advising. But what do you think yeah. about tips? I see they're just a very tiny part of John's ETF here. Well, there's a safety component there. And I think what John and his team has done is great, because, first of all, we have a, there's a huge void of education on inflation and what it can do to client portfolios. And if, if you look at commodities in general, up until the last 12 months, it's kind of been an unloved area. So now, by being able to take those areas of the market that do well during times of inflation, I think to, to what John is saying, it doesn't have to be scary. You can actually lean into it, embrace it, and you can do that by picking off certain sectors in the market 
and added it to your portfolio. John's done that with his clients and then said, hey, let's wrap all these areas up into one easy ticker. And then for those that don't have any type of inflation protection, they can buy that one ticker and make it really easy. Hey, I, I, I'm a big fan of the traditional fund of funds if it's allocated the right way. Here you've got a manager that's seasoned and in, in, in spending a lot of time on the markets and you get it all in one ticker. I, I think it's great. Yeah, well, here's an actively managed, you know, ETF in the in the in the inflation space. I I, I think it's it's terrific. Uh, by the way, the access management team has uh, an old friend of ours, uh, Tom Ben Fulton's on that, and an old friend from the PowerShares days. Uh, so we wish Absolutely. him well. Of course, uh, always good yeah. to see uh, a, a favorite old friend uh, pop up again. Um, I want to just talk about uh, the two big stories for 2021 and what happened: <laughs> China and Kathy Wood. Uh, Tom, is it safe to bet against either of these asset classes? I call ask Kathy Wood an asset class, but you got to admit, John made this point earlier. It's hard to find active managers that really make big bets. You can get kind of like passive active managers, but Kathy Woods makes big bets, and she she blew up on the upside and she blew up on the downside. Um, let's just handicap China and Kathy Wood. Yeah, well, first of all, Kathy Wood just didn't blow up on the upside last year. She's been at it for a while and has put up really, really good numbers. Her team has a long-term outlook. They, they haven't hidden the fact that their outlook is five to seven years. Um, and although many people came in in the last 18 months, it's okay because, look, even though uh, many folks are retiring in their 60s, they're going to live well into their 80s. I've talked about Kathy Wood and, and her lineup to younger people all the time. But listen, Bob, I'm, I'm going to be 62 this week, and I'm invested in Kathy Wood and will continue to be for the next 20 years because I know the future FANG stocks are going to come up in ARC portfolios. So you just have to ride it out, and if you're diversified, you're probably doing okay. Quickly on China, China's not going away. China's going to continue to be a big part of the global infrastructure, and we are clearly intermingling with China on a daily basis. I think China's a buying opportunity. Uh, there are a lot of companies like Crane Shares who do a great job. When you intermingle China and online buying, it's something that we're going to be talking about for the next 10 years. Uh, first, happy birthday, Tom. Always a pleasure uh, to be with you. Uh, you're a few years younger than me, and you look terrific. So you got a lot. You got a <laughs> lot too, more Bob. time to, and a lot more time for you and I to interact together over the years. Uh, John, um, your comments on Kathy Wood and, and China. My, my thought on Kathy Wood uh, is a lot of people say, ah, she failed. I, I don't think Kathy Wood failed. I agree with Tom. I think Kathy Wood succeeded in convincing everybody about the powers of disruptive technology. The problem is everybody believed her. They bought in and drove the prices up to crazy levels. And at some point, somebody's going to start asking about valuation questions, particularly about certain companies that don't make any money or companies, uh, you know, that are flattish for the next few years in terms of earnings. It will matter, and that's what's happened. The people have started saying, we don't hate these stocks. We just want to know what the right price is, given the environment we're moving into in 2022. So uh, give us uh, your your take on Kathy Wood and China. No, I agree with a lot of what you guys said. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're trying to find the next FANG stocks, I mean, she's probably the most qualified out there. So, look, I mean, she had four five great years, one bad year, so I think that's... You know, that's okay. 
um, you know, I think the market environment has kind of changed in terms of like, you know, people are now starting to look at earnings and profitability a little bit more. I mean, at the end of the day, this is now the third year of the COVID recovery. So we are now late cycle, interest rates are rising. So I think that impacts, you know, the, the future discounted cash flows for a lot of tech companies and a lot of the ones that I think in our portfolio, they're not really profitable. But I think she's the best to kind of look at the next FANG stock. So, you know, I've always said when it comes to, you know, disruptive growth, Bitcoin, you got to size it appropriately, appropriately in your portfolio. So it's got to be less than 5%. If it's less than 5%, then you can write out these waves. You know, for China, look, I've been on your show, Bob, many times talking about China. We liked it. You know, we were overweight. You know, it was a very difficult year last year for China. I don't think the, you know, the billion people out there, I, I still think there's a way to monetize it. And, you know, we've always told investors it's a long-term play. So, again, we size it appropriately in our portfolio. So I think you got to stick with China yeah. in your portfolio as well. I think the problem I have, my two cents on China, is there's two kinds of investors in China. One, one are the, the value guys who are floating around saying, all right, if it's, you know, 15 times forward earnings or less, we're interested and we don't care about the politics. Uh, historically, it's performed well when you get 15 times forward or below. Um, and there's a sort of, you know, a knee-jerk kind of investment ideology or strategy, a value strategy. Uh, I think the broader problem is with the people who are in the global community who are trying to figure out, used to believe that you could have China as an investable play based on, say, market capitalization. And what's happened in the last year is people are now saying, wait a minute, the political risk factor around China is far, far higher than in other countries around the world. Therefore, do we need to completely relook re the way we're investing uh, in China because of the higher political risk factor? Or is it even should we even consider investing in it, given the, the particular ideology involved in, in the country? So there's, a, there's an overlay here in China that didn't really even exist uh, a year ago. And that's one of the things that I'm having trouble dealing with. Should we say, uh, yes, there, we need to be compensated for the higher political risk component uh, associated with it? Or could you go even further and say, no, China's uninvestable at this point? Tom, do you get my, my point here, how this debate's no, I, changed in the last year? You're right, Bob. But the, the key thing is China continues to grow. Uh, their investable assets continue to grow. And, and with that, uh, there's more demand from a global market cap standpoint. Uh, but to John's point, you have to allocate an appropriate amount. Listen, the U.S. and the rest of the world and China are always going to do saber rattling, and it's going to be part of, of, of the landscape going forward. So we, we have to know that. Does that mean you, you avoid it 100 percent? No. Uh, they're not going to shoot themselves yeah. in the foot. There's always going to be the back and forth, the ebb and flow, and that's something that's consistent with China over time. So you just have to factor that in and then have the appropriate allocation. If it has a run-up, pull back, give it that 5 or 10% allocation in equity portfolios that's appropriate. But, you know, if you do overweight, you're going to live and die by the sword. That's a good point. All right, gentlemen, I'm going to have to leave it there. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today we're going to be continuing the conversation with my old friend Tom Leiden from ETF Trends. Tom, one of the things we didn't get to talk about on the show was uh, the, the whole trend this year of 2021 of mutual funds converting to ETF formats 
Uh, we had a couple of notable ones in 2021. Do you expect to see that continue into 2022? And I would note, uh, Tom, with almost $900 billion in inflows into ETFs, we saw outflows again from mutual funds. We did, Bob. And, and conversions from mutual funds to ETFs are definitely something that's going to increase. Seeing what Dimensional Fund Advisors did with over $30 billion of their flagship mutual funds and ETFs was really notable. And a lot of other companies uh, are taking that to heart. Like you said, we have saw hundreds of billions of dollars come out of actively managed mutual funds where almost a trillion dollars came into the ETFs. This trend probably is not going to uh, abate anytime soon. So with, with that in mind, we have heard from a lot of mid-sized companies, fund companies, who are very interested in making some conversions. As you know, though, Bob, part of the problem is they don't want to shoot themselves in the foot because almost 70% of, of the income or flows that are going into mutual funds today with established companies are through 401k plans. And they don't want to shoot the goose that laid the golden egg. So that's one of the biggest uh, concerns or challenges in the conversion space. What can we do about that? You, you, we, you and I have been talking about this for 10 years, about when ETFs will more effectively penetrate, as we sh for lack of a better word, uh, the 401k space. You, you've put, put your finger on the problem, uh, the obvious uh, f money flows for the financial industry uh, in it. But is there anything that's going to change that dynamic? Well, uh, the industry claims that it's a plumbing issue that f fractional shares are something that uh, that's a big concern that they can't overcome. You know, I've always said, if we put men on the moon in 1960s, why can't we get this thing figured out? The good thing is there's a lot of uh, pricing pressure within mutual funds where the expense ratios of those funds that make up a big part of the 401k plans have continued to decline. So at one point in time, I think what we're going to see is the industry is going to step forward and say, we're going to figure this thing out. We're going to get the right pricing down. We're going to get the right plumbing down because it just doesn't make sense. That advantage that those poor performing funds with higher expense ratios make up a big chunk of the uh, of the funds that are available in these uh, 401k plans is somewhat disturbing. And as you know, from tracking this market for decades, if there's any outliers where there's a huge opportunity to chop expenses, that will eventually come. Do, do you believe this argument, though, that the main reason we can't get ETFs uh, into 401k plans is the fractional share problem? Is, is that really the, 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 the problem? Well, it, it's part of it. The other thing is, from a regulatory standpoint, there's not a lot of motivation from the yeah. SEC, for example, to encourage the industry to move in that direction because there's enough choice right now. Uh, the, mm -hmm. However, it's all about sales. So there are a lot of small yeah. plans out there, mid-sized plans out there that have some unbelievable expenses with some fund options that just aren't that great. I think we can do better. I, I think so, too. I, I'm quite familiar with this. I've, I've looked at many people's plans over the years, 401k plans. And while I am now starting to see a sprinkling of 
uh, indexed plans, in, 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 including target date funds. The Vanguard target date fund ETFs are doing very well in some of the 401k plans. I'm still very surprised uh, at a lot of these plans that I look at where I see one index choice option and a target date option and then some fairly high priced mutual funds thrown in um, with them. Uh, and it's, I don't think the choices are that amazing for a lot of these funds. Um, and I'm, well, I'm not, talking about, you know. There will be pressure, Bob, on there's more and more pressure on, on the plan providers. So those that are kind enough to offer this as a benefit to their employees, great. But at the same time, if they're not offering proper investment allocations or proper choices, then uh, that can work against them. So I think we're going to see more of that, more scrutiny over time. Yeah. Um, one final thought, yeah. as you were talking about target date funds, what's really interesting, as you and I are in our 60s, and you look at people, uh, our peers that are, uh, that are that are set to retire, I'm a little concerned about having most of the money in target date funds like a 2025 that would be in fixed income when we're entering a rising rate environment. I think, I think that's something that we're yeah. going to be talking about as we, as we come into the next year. Well, this is a different topic for a different day, but the whole idea of retirement is just changing so fast. I mean, I'm, I'm 65. I've, you know, I, I've told people publicly, I've changed from thinking of living to 85 to, to, to 95 or 100 now uh, in the last 10 years. Um, and, you know, that means if that's true, if I'm living to 90, I got another 25 years of investing to go. Um, I would be crazy to suddenly switch, you know, to, uh, you know, 75, 25 st bonds, the stock portfolio, like in the old days, you know, invest your age. That would be crazy. I mean, it would literally, I, I think it would be ill-advised. I'm being kind. I think it would be crazy <laughs> to do that. Yeah. It, um, well, so it is. I, it is. You're, you're so right, because, look, um, we haven't had, after 30 years of declining rates, we haven't had a significant period of rising rates or inflation. But right now, for those that uh, would have more than half of their portfolio in fixed income, uh, but could live another 20 or, or 30 years, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So folks like you and I need to talk yeah. more about it. Yeah, let's... Uh that is a topic for another show, something I feel very passionate uh, about. Uh, and we'll drag Tom in for his thoughts on that in the future. Now, that's it for today. I'm Bob Pisani, and I want to thank everybody for listening. Make sure you tune in next week. In the meantime, you can tweet us your questions or topic ideas at ETF Edge CNBC. Thank you all for joining us. Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Become an agent of innovation. Invesco QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.